as we do, we always like to throw in at least one turd on each album. So, so I'm sorry. Did I did I spoil did I spoil the next song? This is what happens when you let a bass player write it. <laughs> oh God! Record the song. <laughs> always a problem. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends and musicians dig deep into the backgrounds and stories behind some of history's most influential albums and bands as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We want to thank you again for inviting us into your ears for the next hour. My name is Adam, and I'll be guiding us along this week's journey into an album from 1972, called Number One Record by cult favorite and band I had never heard of before, Big Star. If you've never heard this album, welcome to the club, and we got you covered because we'll be dropping in plenty of clips along the way. Don't forget, at the end of the podcast, we'll randomly select our next album for next week's show, so please stick around so you can get your homework. Now, I am super excited to jump into this album, but first, we gotta jump into our listener mailbag, and that's where I throw it over to Rob. Hey, thanks, Adam. Yeah, we have some fun mail today. This is a bit of mail from Sergio. And Sergio says, hey, I'm 48 Portuguese, but living in Barcelona and a longtime Bell and Sebastian fan. Best band ever, he says. Oh, I have to say, first of all, before we get into the note that uh, we get a lot of we've been getting a lot of feedback about this Bell and Sebastian episode. I think we really tapped into something. It's a. (laughs) It's a fan community that has a lot of opinions, and we encourage all of them. So uh, thank you for writing. Uh, Sergio goes on to say, been wanting to write to you for some time now, so here I am, just to tell you that I got to know the podcast because of the Bell and Sebastian episode. Makes sense. I was actually the one responsible for sharing it with the band's fans forum on Facebook. And against all odds, and my first impression... It became my favorite podcast ever. So we won. Apparently, we won this guy over after a rocky beginning. That's awesome. He says. He says after that first listen, I went through a lot of the catalog, and apart from being up to date with the new episodes, for instance, I loved the Stereo Lab one. And just so you know, I just saw them live a month ago here in Barcelona. They were great. I still go back, and I want to listen to all of them. Nice. I've been having a blast listening to you. You're honest, funny as hell, and mainly. You actually know what you're talking about, even if you're wrong. (laughs) It's said with conviction, though. So, right. That's a a good note. What else can we ask for of a podcast about records? Have a great holiday season and keep them coming. Oh, my God. That's great. Sergio, thank you so much. That's fantastic. Well, we really appreciate that feedback and and that mail. That's awesome. Yeah, we appreciate it. And so if you, after this episode, which... Is another, I imagine this is another fan community type band. Yeah, a lot of people are going to have a lot of call. opinions. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes, and a lot of facts we may or may not get correct, but we're going to do our best. But if at the end of this episode you have opinions, good or bad, you want to tell us what you think, tell us you like us, want to correct us, whatever it is, or post us to a big star fan community, please uh, do that and then let us know about it at 1001 Album Complaints. At Gmail, we'd love to hear from you. 
Awesome, Rob. Thank you. And don't forget that if you are enjoying the show, go ahead and subscribe, like, write a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And just like Rob said, you can drop us an email. We love seeing those come through. We read all of them and, uh, and take them to heart. So thank you. Okay, so this week we've been listening to a band that I had literally never heard of prior to this week, and that is the Memphis power pop band called Big Star. So let's jump right into the music, and then we'll come back with some introductions, our special guest for the week, as well as our tweet-length reviews. So here's the first track off of Big Star's 1972 debut album, number one record. This song is called Feel. Okay, so that was the song Feel, which starts off the album. I always love hearing these not only debut albums, but also debut tracks from bands that I've never heard of. So we'll get into why Big Star may have shot themselves in the foot, titling their debut album with a name like Number One Record. Spoiler alert, this album barely sold 5,000 copies. And the band broke up after it was released. If there, There's nothing more American than that. <laughs> He's selling nothing. <laughs> so much promise. And yeah. Sink into a deep depression and then break up. Anyway, I'm going to throw it around the room here for those tweet length reviews. But first, I want to welcome back our guest this week. Marty Walsh is a longtime friend of the crew here and lifelong drummer and musician out of Portland, Oregon. So, Marty, the Twitter feed is yours. Hey, thanks for having me on again. This is such a blast. So, my tweet length review is you know that generic sounding theme song from tv's the 70s show <laughs> the band that wrote that song wrote others like it and put it on an album that funny enough is called number one record boom all right marty coming in hot we love it all right <laughs> throwing it over to rob wow this might be a contentious one so i this is rob here and i wrote wholesome Layered songwriting with a driving beat and excellent vocal harmony. This is the non-cocaine 1970s in concentrate delivered to you in under an hour. All right, everybody, this is Adam. And for an album that celebrates its 50th birthday this year, it's still beautiful and simple and endlessly listenable. The Big Star Story is a cautionary tale that reminds us of just how fickle the music industry is. Hmm. First of all, can I just say that, you know, Adam, you already announced that you never heard this record before this week. In some cosmic way, I think this podcast was created so that you, Adam, could hear records <laughs> like could this. find this <laughs> record. Yes. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, poison the well, but Rob, I think you're coming in on, on where I landed this week, uh, which is, I, I went through this album more than I do most of the other albums we dive into. Like we joke, you know, it's, 10, 15, 20 times. I probably listened to this album 40 times this week and it, uh, it never got old for me. 
Well, okay. So I'm, yeah, that, that's more or less how I feel about it too. But to maybe speak to Marty's point right off the bat, and I have to admit, I kind of thought based on what I know about Marty's taste, we, Marty and I have never spoken about this record directly to my knowledge, but I would have assumed Marty would have, would have liked it a bit more, but I wanted to, yeah, I caught this review of the album because as Adam alluded to, right, this didn't sell a lot of records, but it's become kind of a cult favorite over the years. It's kind of grown in popularity in those 50 years. And this review, I'm not sure exactly when it was written, but it was written definitely not contemporary to when the album came out. But the reviewer made this point. He said, the problem with coming in late on an artwork lauded as influential, meaning Big Star's number one record, is that you've probably encountered the work it influenced first. So it's truly innovative qualities are lost. Thus, if you're hearing this debut album decades after its release, as inevitably most people must be, you may be reminded of Tom Petty or R.E.M. (laughs) And that's, you're losing what's remarkable about this 1972 album, which is that very few people were doing stuff like this at that time. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so let's just dive into some of the history here. So so for some context, this album was recorded over the course of about 10 months in 1971 and released on April 24th of 1972. The core of this band, as you'll hear as we get into this, is really somewhat of a Lennon-McCartney story. And it's funny to say that because you, the, the two main drivers, actually the whole band, were huge Beatles fans. You got to think that they started recording this in 71, the Beatles broke up in 69. There's not a ton of time there. So these guys were huge fans of the Beatles, of Led Zeppelin. There's a very heavily British influence in this band. And so uh, the whole Lennon-McCartney story, you'll see a bit of a parallel there. So I want to jump back now into the year 1965. The British invasion is in full swing. And in Memphis, Tennessee, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting some crappy garage band or some <laughs> some local live music venue. Music was really, uh, live music particularly, was crushing it in Memphis in the mid-60s. And it was an extremely young, thriving music scene. We're talking like 14-year-olds and 13-year-olds forming bands and actually getting gigs around the city. So there were two guys named Alex Chilton and Chris Bell, and they both played together when they were really young in a small trio for a couple months, but then they went their own ways. Both boys were around 14 or 15. Let's jump ahead a little bit further now into the year 1967. So there was a group called The Box Tops out of Memphis, Tennessee, and they had a hit song called The Letter, which we'll drop right here. Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter I don't care how much money I gotta spend Got to get back to my baby again Lonely days are gone, I'm a-going home My baby just wrote me a letter When she wrote me a letter Said she couldn't live without me no more Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more anyway, All right, so that song sold one million copies and was certified gold. Now, I watched a documentary this week called Big Star, Nothing Can Hurt Me. The documentary said it was four million copies. That's a pretty big variation in, in albums sold or copies sold for that. But either way, it sold a shit ton of records. I mean, it was a big hit. I'm, I know the song quite well, and I'm not super aware of that genre of music. 
And, and you know what? It has that it has that Memphis sound. You know, it's got that you know uh, Wilson Pickett style kind punchy of punchy horns and vocal. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally. So that it was the number two song for the entire year of 1967. And the the singer of that song, that low, gruff voice, was a 16-year-old named Alex Chilton, who would later join this band Big Star and be one of the two singers and guitar players. I got to say, if you put a gun to my head and played that recording and asked me who that singer was and, and compared the two, what he sounds like on Big Star and what he sounds like on The Letter... There's no way I would tell you that was the same. It's guy. almost impossible to believe that it's the same person and a 16 year old person at that. Right. Exactly. Alex Chilton has a really interesting backstory, too. But when he came into the box tops and they had a very overbearing manager and producer. And so as they were in the studio recording these, I think they said that the letter was like the second time that Alex Chilton had ever stood in front of a microphone. And basically, he was doing an impression of what their manager said the song should sound like. So he puts on this really low, gruff voice, and it was a hit. So Alex proceeds to go on tour with the Box Tops and records another album with them and tours with them until the year 1970. Now, while Alex is having his run with the Box Tops, the other hero of our story, a guy named Chris Bell, also in the local Memphis scene, is putting together a band called Icewater with a drummer named Jody Stevens and a bass player named Andy Hummel. Chris Bell and Alex Shilton had met years earlier when they were about 13, and the Memphis music scene is pretty tight, so we're, we're laying the groundwork here for when these two eventually well, meet up again. Yeah, it's kind of a small town. I think that's that's the thing to understand. And the other thing to understand maybe about why Big Star was such a an oddity is like, yeah, the Beatles had gone on Ed Sullivan and, you know, probably swept through town, even causing all these young kids to pick up guitars. But Memphis at this point in 1970 is still really known for that, that other style of rock and roll, the staple singers, Stax records, Booker T, exactly. Albert King, Elvis. Exactly. All that yeah. The, stuff. It's yeah. like more birthplace of rock and roll, uh, kind of hard edged stuff. So this British invasion thing was not super popular in Memphis necessarily, And it is a pretty small town, tight knit community. So we jump back to Alex Chilton. He's been touring with the box top and he's completely burnt out. He's tired of singing other people's music. He's tired of the touring schedule. The way the box tops was recorded was very much like some of the older, you know, early 60s, 50s albums where you have a group of studio musicians. They come in, they do all the music, and then the singer just comes in, sings it, and leaves. So Alex quits the box tops and goes to New York to kind of find himself as a whatever he is, you know, 18 years old at this point. So he gets into the New York folk scene and basically learns how to play guitar over the course of a year in New York, playing at uh, open mic nights at Folk City in New York, which also cracks me up. I, I guess he had enough box tops money to just move to New York and just hang out, you know, the most expensive city in the world and just <laughs> just yeah. find his, find well, his bearings. I think it was... I don't, I don't think it was quite as expensive back then. This is, yeah, you know, if you probably point. went and lived in Greenwich Village, it was probably pretty cheap and, and grimy, right, back in those days. And he was trying to follow his, his sort of Bob Dylan dreams. Right. He, he clearly finds this other style of music, this like folkier thing that he ends up bringing into Big Star. One, one of the things I thought was interesting that I read about the box tops was that they, they recorded that record. But then, and like you said, Adam, I don't even think the band members got to play on the tracks. They were probably a little 
annoyed about that because that's how they did things back then. They're like, no, right. we, we know you can play the song, but we're not going to let you play the song. Get, get out of here. We got a, we got a guy for that. <laughs> but then as the song is becoming a hit, the band was kind of already falling apart because it was just young guys who, you know, maybe didn't even know each other that well. Like Shiltman just joined the band. He's 16. They're like in their early 20s. They're probably off to college. And so, yeah, they cobbled together a new band and and some live shows and a rotating cast but it was never really a gelled group of dudes who like wanted to be in a band together. They never had right, that an organic, vibe. yeah, an organically formed band that that had a vision or anything like that. Right. All right. So Alc Chilton is done in New York. He moves back to Memphis with a handful of songs and a desire to get back into a band. Now there's a third major character in this story, and that's Ardent Records, which Jody Stevens, the drummer of Big Star, called the Disney World of Creative Environments. <laughs> Ardent Records was a studio that was founded out of a guy's living room. That guy was John Fry. He eventually built a studio in the mid-1960s, but it all came from basically high schoolers coming to him and wanting to record albums in his living room. So he starts to build his, his, his repertoire and his ability and his knowledge of recording in his living room and eventually gets enough money to go buy a building. So I think that, yeah, this is super interesting. And we should mention that Arden has come up on the podcast before because ZZ Top's Trace Ombres was recorded there and Zeppelin 3 was recorded there. Yes, I knew Zeppelin was, yeah. And, to- and tons of other shit. <laughs> and tons yeah. of other shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, the, but those are two big ones kind of in the rock and roll canon. And we covered the ZZ Top one and we talked a little bit about it. So from Humble Beginnings, it became this big, this big studio. And what I thought was interesting hearing about that guy, John Fry, who started the studio was he he saw you know the Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment he saw all the kids his age picking up buying guitars and trying to learn to play and put bands together and his thinking was like I'm going to go kind of in a different direction I'm going to learn how to record people of this age and I'm going to figure that that business out cuz he's only a couple years older than the guys right. at Big Star right right but he was such an older brother sort of figure to them and so in those early days when they're still a pretty young studio He's just friends like Chris Bell and Chilton are just like friends with him. And he's just giving them unlimited studio access and like teaching them how to be audio engineers. I think Chris Bell worked there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I I think part of the deal was one of the early deals that Ardent struck was with Stax, where Stax was getting so much business that they needed an overflow studio space. And Ardent ended up being that studio space. So they they would be like booked for months with these Stax recording sessions in the Arden studios. And what Fry realized pretty quickly is like, I need more audio engineers and I just have to train them myself. So he started like giving classes and Chris Bell is one of the guys that showed up to those classes and ultimately ended up working for him. And that kind of goes with, with my whole theory about this band, which is mediocre songs that are very, very, very well produced. Uh, yeah. I, th- due, I mean, due to having access to a studio I think I think that's kind of fair. It's it's not just access though. I think they actually do have some intelligent production applied to them, sure. some creative production applied to them. But yeah, access is a big part of it. Well, that's interesting too because they they said that this band really came of age in an environment that allowed that that was a petri dish. There's there's the stories of real guitar players who found a, a three-stringed instrument that was half broken and they still made it sound great, right? Then there's the other side, which is if you take people and you give them the slickest, best uh, equipment, 
a quiet room, dedicate the time, what'll happen there? And I, you know, obviously the, 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 the latter is what we're seeing here, which is you got a group of creative kids and they now have free reign, free access, like you said, Rob, a free unlimited time overnight. Basically, the guy gave them the keys to a world-class, state-of-the-art studio, which was unheard of at the time. Uh, and that that's really where they started to hone their sound and, and hone the album. So we've introduced our main characters now. Uh, the stage is set. So Alex Chilton is back in Memphis. Chris Bell has a song and a band. Uh, I haven't mentioned them yet. So Jody Stevens is the drummer. The bass player is a guy named Andy Hummel. Chris Bell plays guitar. And of course, Alex Chilton plays guitar and sings and, and Chris Bell sings as well. There's another side player named Terry Manning who does some keyboards on the album and a lot of the backups wasn't, uh, I, I don't believe he's actually listed in, in the liner notes, but he's, he was definitely in he, the studio helping these guys out. Well, he's, he's another ardent engineer too. Cause I think he gets listed as the producer on the trace Ombres record. If I recall correctly. Oh man, I love how all these things start intersecting. All right. So over the course of a year, the band gets the chance to practice, play and write in a studio and experiment with sound textures at a very early age. Jody Stevens, the drummer, is 19 when they start recording this. Andy Hummel is 20. Chris Bell is 20. Alex Chilton is 21. These are babies <laughs> who have access to this fantastic environment. So we flash forward one year and we have the release of number one record. So while John Fry is credited as the producer, it was really the band who produced the album. He said later in interviews that they, they put him on there, but it was really Chris Bell specifically he said that he didn't want anyone else to screw it up. And there are stories of, of he was always the last one to leave the studio, always the last one to leave the recording sessions, is that he was the main guy in there running the tracks, tweaking things, and really coming up with the overall sound of the album. It was really his vision. So he, Bell loved the Kinks, the Beatles, the Who, uh, Zeppelin, and you can hear a lot of that in the sound and production here. So then guess what happened when the guy who had all the creative vision and was a deep, sensitive, artistic personality, released a record, <laughs> and he had a guy who was already a big name in music in the band, and that guy got all the attention. How, how do you think that went? I guess he was probably fine, right? He probably <laughs> went for a long walk in the woods. Uh, I, I assume it, it's a happy ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to that in a minute, Rob. So the record's released in 1972. It's getting a ton of critical acclaim. All the different rock publications love it. Cashbox, Billboard, Rolling Stone, they're all giving it great reviews. And as Rob mentioned, Chris Bell just knew, just knew deep down in his heart, 100% confident that this was going to take off. Hearing it 50 years later, I kind of agree with him. I, I think it should have. Uh, radio stations were playing it. The public was digging the radio tracks. But then it came time to actually buy the record and they couldn't find it anywhere. There was a radio interview with the band and the DJ keeps asking him like, what, when is it in stores? And the guys are like, oh, I, th I think it's in stores now. It should, it should be in stores now. And like, it's very iffy and they knew something was up. So it turns out in retrospect, the problem was distribution. So we mentioned Stax earlier. Stax Records was unable to distribute in mass. So they signed a deal with Columbia. It was much bigger and should have been able to help get records out across the country. That's what they do, right? They're a big record company. They have the ability to get records on trucks and get them into stores. But Columbia had no interest in honoring the prior agreements that Stax had made with their subsidiaries, the subsidiaries being all these different studios. So, so Stax, for all this overflow work, 
was was buying studios and making them like a certain genre. So Ardent was going to be the rock arm of Stax. Right. Um, some of the other were going to be blues and, and R&B arms of Stax. Well, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a convoluted story, right? Because Stax was this very successful small record label in the 60s. And some of the artists and the great records they put out, we mentioned a couple of them, but Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, right? Bill but Cosby. At this point, they did they did they put out their early Cosby records? Yeah, yeah. Richard Pry- Richard Pryor, Bill Cosby. Nice. I, I know it's unhip to say, but man, those old Cosby records, man. That first I Cosby record. Those. I listen. I know it's. I Why can't is there actually air? listen to it anymore? No, I'm thinking of the Noah bit. Oh my God! Yes, I memorized that as a kid. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so Stax had some success, but at this point, they had kind of fallen on harder times. And they were losing money and they would, they would eventually go bankrupt. So they, they strike this deal with Columbia, a much bigger record label, to help with their distribution. Now, Columbia is really wanting the back catalog that we just mentioned of Sam and Dave and Otis Redding Records. They're not thinking at all about dorky white guys coming out of Memphis and making pop <laughs> right. records. And two, it's complicated by the fact and this character actually came up on the Earth, Wind, and Fire episode that Clive Davis is the record executive at Columbia who made the deal. And then shortly after the deal with Stax gets made, Clive Davis gets fired for some kind of uh, financial impropriety allegations. Well, it was a payola. It was a payola scam where yeah. he was taking or he was giving money to DJs and, and all these different distributors to push certain albums, I believe. Right. So then at that point, the new head of Columbia is like, well, that that other guy got fired. So I don't really like his deals either. So they really just, I think, got buried in the in the mix of this, unfortunately. Well, that happened for the second album that Big Star released. The first album that they released, Columbia was involved, but it wasn't the Clive Davis issue. It was Mm. some other kind of contract where they they weren't respecting the subsidiaries that Stax owned. So Columbia winds up not only just not distributing this album, but went so far as to remove the album from record stores. <laughs> I mean, like you can't think of anything worse. That's a bummer. Th- yeah. So Chris Bell is absolutely destroyed by this. He poured his heart and soul into an album that really went nowhere, and he was completely helpless to do anything about it. I mean, truly helpless. What are you going to do? Throw well, albums in your car and drive it around? To, well, to hold on. Now, Adam, that's called touring. That's, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of bands do take that route. And this band argued about that particular aspect as well, which is Chris Bell thought of it as a studio project, and they had poured over it, like we said. We're going to talk about some of the production which I'm sure would have been difficult to recreate live. Alex Chilton, who had some success as a touring musician already, was like, let's take it on the road. Let's be a touring band. That's the way to get this record to the people. But ultimately, they really didn't play many shows outside of Memphis at all, or really in Memphis at all. That's something I didn't even think of. That's a really good point. They could have <laughs> done cut that. an album they and could have done tour, that, right? But they couldn't right. agree as a band to do that. Oh, man. So... Right. The album is being, at this point, it's being removed from stores. It only sold about 5,000 copies after its release. Now, Rob, you had mentioned how stable Chris Bell was. And in a fit of rage, because the album's going nowhere, he goes into the studio and takes the multi-track masters and starts erasing them one night. One of the engineers got a heads up 
I, I don't know if like Chris Bell was drunk somewhere and was like, I'm going to go delete it. Well, somebody called one of the other engineers or producer at Arden Studios. That guy ran into like the the room where they keep everything and took the mastered or the stereo master and stuck it in another box. Oh, jeez. So Chris Bell does successfully delete the multi-track masters. And and what what that means, if if you might not know, if if you've ever seen video of of people in a studio and they're sitting in front of this giant board and they're they're moving knobs up and down and instruments and voices are getting louder and quieter. That's when you have the multi-track masters. That is each instrument, each voice is on its own separate track and you can control it. Right. So Chris Bell goes in and deletes all those. Now, what he wasn't able to delete was an already mixed down stereo master, which is what we hear on the record today. Well, and I think other than him being a little nutty and just really, you know, he was fighting with Alex Shilton, part of the this is what I alluded to earlier, right? But as the record was getting press coverage, people were really focused on Alex Chilton, even though he's only he only sings on about half the tracks. And, you know, they were this writing partnership, but they're they're kind of 50-50 on writing and singing. But because Alex Chilton had this history as the singer of the box tops and he was known, that was what everyone focused on. Oh, this is Alex Chilton's right. new band. And that really pissed Chris Bell off. So that was creating a lot of tension between them, that plus the lack of distribution and success. But also, you know, Chris Bell, I think, thought of himself as a bit of a purist. He thought he had seen already at that time, and he was right, that with those multi-track masters, people can then go back, even posthumously, and remix your stuff and just redo it and re, you know, he he wanted total control of the material. So even though I don't agree with his approach, that's part of what he was th- and I'm sure he was in fact drunk or these guys were right. really in- I mentioned this is the non-cocaine 70s they were real into downers <laughs> like quaaludes and and mandrax which is like British quaaludes and seconals and stuff like that so I, I'm sure he was uh, altered at the time but right. that's part right. of what he was thinking alright so that brings us up to the point of this record's release we're going to get into the tunes in a minute but I do want to continue just telling a bit of the of the after story of of big star. And I think what contributes a lot to their cult, their cult appeal. It's, sure. it's a really interesting story. So the band breaks up, but they do get back together and they record two more studio albums, neither of which really do anything. The second release called radio city was plagued with personality problems as well as Chris bell getting heavy into drugs and alcohol. And this is a Rob, Rob, what you were talking about, which was Columbia wanted the the catalog rights to stacks. Clive Davis comes in and they Columbia basically pulls out of everything. And so now this this is the second big star album that goes nowhere. Uh, they can't get this distribution. Stacks goes out of business. And I think the second album sold 20,000 copies, which nowadays that would be huge because people don't buy stuff anymore. But right. back then you had to sell at least 100,000 well, copies before you you made well, we any sh- kind of a splash. Well, we should also say that by band breaking up, what we mean is Chris Bell left the band before that second record came out. They had recorded some of it with him because I think I think one of the things that happened was that they took a long time with this record, number one record, and then it t- subsequently took a long time to actually get it released and printed, right? And so in that time, they had started work on a second record as that original foursome, but then Chris Bell leaves and the other three guys decide to continue, finish that second record and release it. So then there's 
that whole debacle goes down and they try one more time with a third album called Third. They really need some help in naming <laughs> you know, number, number three record, yeah. <laughs> I, he wanted, Alex Chilton wanted to call it Sister Lovers. So I hear it called both of those Oh, yes, it, I, but that yeah, it explains is. It's kind of it. got a slash in it, yeah. But those, that third record is basically the, the first Alex Chilton solo record because I think at that point even the bass player had left and even okay. on the cover, it's just him. It's just him and one other guy from the original band, and Alex Chilton went on to do more solo work. But it's 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 much weirder. That third record is is way less pop and produced. And let me guess, it had distribution problems too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think anybody wanted it at that point. Distribution was happening all around right. with all the other albums, except for anything <laughs> that Big Star did or touched. There, all the distribution problems. Yeah, it's it's uh Alex Chilton seems he he's he's thought of as more the brains behind Big Star in the in the historical canon. He has that there's a replacement song called Alex Chilton that also helped right. make him a little more famous plus he continued to be alive and tour until I think he died in like 2010 or something. Chris Bell is a little more unfortunately buried in history and also because he tragically died at age 27 in a, in a car accident. Yeah, so that was in 78. His car uh, went out of control and hit a telephone pole. Now, oh, Rob, it, it, I'm not sure uh, you, you mentioned you read a documentary. I heard an interview with the woman who wrote a book about him and said, that it's extremely unlikely that it was like a depression thing is that he, and in 1978, he was not so low that he would have done something like that. So yeah. I think it was just a tragedy. I think it was just a tragedy. He was, they say he was like partying that night, but the, but he didn't have a uh, significant blood alcohol and yeah, his friends don't seem to think it could have been a suicide attempt, even though that was rumored at mm-hmm. the time. You know, basically, there are a lot of easier ways to commit suicide. But yeah, unfortunately, he got in a car wreck and joined the Twenty Seven Club. He That's did. Right. He did make one solo record that didn't see release, or at least not wide release, until uh, long after he died, which is actually pretty cool. Called "I Am the Cosmos," which I would recommend. I listened to that listen opening to. track. Yeah, on your uh, on your um, uh, recommendation, it's a very cool track. Very cool track. But I would say like a lot of the fighting between him and Alex, and you can see this in their their solo careers or even what happens later with Big Star versus what happens in Chris Bell's solo record, is this distinction between being really studio focused, being really produced, being really precise and kind of a perfectionist and Alex Chilton wanting to be much more of an off the cuff, improvisational, a little more avant-garde, weird. You know, so there was I maybe... I don't know that that tension was there, I guess, from an early stage, but then they kind of shot off in their own directions. Yeah, I, I saw a couple shows of of Alex Chilton that were probably in the maybe 90s where he was kind of like at odds with his audience. And, you know, they would be holding up big star T-shirts and stuff. And he would, you know, kind of be like, OK, well, I'm going to this is going to be a you know, a set of Burt Bacharach and like girl from, <laughs> girl from Ipanema just right. to like, yeah, just to like fuck with them, I guess. But he seemed to not really want to read, you know, dive into the big star thing in this later career. That is true. That I think that was for quite a while. He really was, was salty about it for whatever reason and didn't, didn't appreciate fans wanting to come up to him and talk about big star or want to play those songs in concert. I think he did eventually kind of come around and end up 
you know, performing in some of those concerts and reuniting as much a big star as possible and playing some of those tunes. But he definitely seems like a crusty character, I should say. And, you know, I think both of these guys were struggling with their sexuality. This is definitely rumor mill kind of stuff. But Chris Bell never came out as gay, but there's most a lot of people think that he was a closeted gay man. And that was part of his turmoil. And I would say Alex Shulton, too, has an element of that. Maybe he's bisexual. I'm not really sure. But there's there's some of that energy and frustration with the world that I get from these guys. Yeah, there was an interview with Chris Bell's brother who said that after Chris Bell, so Chris Bell also went heavy into like evangelical Christianity. He got really heavy into Jesus uh, later in his life. And uh, he had, I think, uh, mentioned to his brother that religion or Jesus is what helps him keep his like sexual, his sexual uh, desires at bay. Like, mm. So there was, again, she had, that even his brother mentioned in, in interviews that he, he thought his brother was probably they call it They call it the junk to Jesus path. It's like, I need to get off these drugs. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for, for uh, our, our final kind of, where are they now thing? So we, we mentioned Chris Bell dies in, in that, that car accident and something really creepy. Jody Stevens, the drummer unknowingly drove by the crash scene that night and didn't find out until a couple days later that, that he, he remembers seeing that, that wreck. So Alex Chilton went on to record lots of solo stuff, but he died in 2010, three days before he was supposed to play South by Southwest Music Festival. Andy Hummel, the bass player, left the band, went back to school, wound up working for 30 years at Lockheed Martin. <laughs> Good for him, damn it. <laughs> Good on uh, him. And then he actually died three months after Chilton of a, of a heart attack. Oh, and then Jody Stevens, the drummer, is the only surviving member. So that's our fade to black. Where are they now? All right, gents, you ready to get into some songs let's on this it. number one let's friggin' go, record? Let's go. Let's go. All right, let's <laughs> jump back into that title track. This is called Feel. You think they were listening to Zeppelin at all when they uh, recorded this one? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear like a lot of like Mark Bolin, like T Rex kind of thing going on. Oh there. shit! Was, yeah, even though it was probably yeah. like around happening around the same time, but yeah, I, yeah that song, I, I that think, song gives me anxiety. Yeah, it's got a weird. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's got a weird tension in the it's something in the about rhythm. it. Just like no, stop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his uh, his voice. This is Chris. This is Chris's Her, tune and Chris right. singing. And I think it makes for a nice kickoff. It It's an elevated, t- to Marty's earlier point about these being somewhat mediocre rock songs that are well-produced. First of all, I certainly agree they're well-produced. They're not amazingly written rock songs, but this one has enough, I feel, in the writing and arrangement to elevate it. And, and one of the things I took note of is that I do always appreciate upbeat songs with kind of darker lyrical content to them, which is, this is like that. I didn't even look at the lyrics. <laughs> are, are you surprised? Or how dark are they? I feel like I'm dying. I'm, you know, never gonna live again. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, for your for your debut pop song, they're they're credited as being you know pop, so pop rock or whatever. That's yeah, that that's interesting. 
So Chris, Chris's mother was from England, so he always, I think, considered himself half English. So he loved those those British rock sounds, and you can definitely hear that uh, in this track. And again, you know, Terry Manning, uh, one of the engineers, had mixed Led Zeppelin three. Now, when did Led Zeppelin three come out? That was after this, right? I think so. Must have been right about the same year, but I don't know when they when the recording would have happened. Because that'd be funny if if Chris went to a race like the masters and he, they swapped it with Led Zeppelin three. <laughs> um, like the butterfly effect. You flash forward to what the world would look like now. And there's like robots right, right. and like, you know, it's Terminator yeah, like, or something. Yeah. There's a, there's like a, there's like a mono recording of number one record out there right. and, and no Led Zeppelin three. <laughs> okay. So Led Zeppelin three was, was released October 5th of 1970, which means oh, that oh, damn. they, uh, if, if that Definitely was recorded earlier. Yeah. That's so funny. I always forget how fast bands used to turn around music because Let's Up and One came out in like 69. Like, how did they get to right, three? Like three months. Oh, they're just like cranking them. Yeah, <laughs> they're cranking them out. <laughs> All right. Now, Rob, you know my uh, my eternal uh, battle against the saxophone and rock music. Where yeah. do you think oh. I stand? Where do you think I stand I on this one? this was a very, very, I, I think you'll like it because it represents, yes, it's a little bit of a throwback to a 50s vibe, but it's got some modernity to it and it's reserved. Like there's not a ton of it, right? It's not like he's right, going right. off on a sax solo like the guy in the Lost Boys or something. Right. <laughs> so yes, I do actually like the sax solo. We'll We'll drop that in here. No, that's hot. That's it, great. It's got some great like muscle shoals, Rolling Stones, yeah. sticky fingers kind of sax. Yeah, I, I was trying to kind of make you know, I, I didn't I listened to the album probably twenty years ago and was like, eh, okay, i I get it. And then I'm kind of going and doing my Wikipedia thing and I'm like, I, I just assumed this that this band was from like maybe Minnesota. <laughs> or like Michigan yeah. or something or like Detroit. Right. I'm like, you know, but then hearing that they're from Memphis, then I start trying to pull any sort of like Memphis type influence out of these songs. And that's probably one of the most clearest, uh, you know, examples that sax solo. The guy who played that sax solo was a guy named Andrew Love, and he was from a group called the Memphis Horns. Mm. So they were probably just at stacks. They did a lot of those backing horn sections for a lot of the records being cranked out at, at sax. So uh, they were definitely a Memphis-based horn group, and yeah, nailed it. Yeah, because the affirmation, I wonder if he ever played, um, sorry, I'm just remembering from previous conversations that Booker T and the MGs were kind of the house band at stacks for a long time. I wonder if... Um, they were part of that crew. I just thought they packed a lot into about a three-minute song. There's a guitar solo. Oh, there's a so horn. There's part, so much going there's on. There's an outro. Like yeah. it's a whole thing. Yeah, it always it always hurts to listen to <laughs> with headphones. Right. It is it is a lot. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll give you that. I I'll say another thing about this record too. Even the songs that I I had listened to this a couple times in my life, but I wouldn't say I was uber familiar before this week. Listening to it a bunch. And they all kind of sound like they could be radio hits. I agree that very few of them really stand out as truly exceptional, like all time mm -hmm. tracks, but right. they all sound like they could have easily been 
been a 70s singles. rock song on the exactly. radio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to move along to the next song. Again, these guys are terrible with titles. This song is called The Ballad of <laughs> <laughs> The Ballad of El Goodo. Years ago my heart was set to live. Oh. And I've been trying hard against unbelievable odds. It's so hard in times like now to hold the guns they wait to be stuck right at my side is God And there ain't no one going to turn me around Ain't no one going to turn me around That's awesome. That is that is pop ballad rock ballad whatever you want to call it perfection right there sorry it's i mean the, what did you what did you guys think <laughs> it's the only it's the only song on the album that i that i could list that i could probably listen to like for f- five days straight like once a day <laughs> no more than once a day but once a day for five days straight i could listen, <laughs> I, listen to that song yes it's i think it's still my favorite song on the album it was the one that caught my ear the very first time i listened to it years ago and this week again I think it's the best, it's the most successful track to me. This is an Alex Chilton track, meaning he both wrote it and sings it. And I really, what I realized on on digging a little deeper into the record this week is I, I do just like Alex Chilton better. I, I think I like his writing style better. It's a little more vulnerable and real. I like his voice better. It has a sort of fragile confidence to it that's kind of Agreed. Uh, mesmerizing. It's kind of got like a... It's kind of got like a Graham Parsons sings thing going on with his solo stuff. Yeah, that I really dig. Totally, and I feel like this track could have been on Tom Petty's Wildflowers or something. I mean, it's just like an all-time Americana type pop track in my mind. Rob, I I don't remember in, in my research if it was Alex or if it was Chris Bell who went out to the West Coast and spent some time with uh, Graham Parsons like slept on his couch for like a week or two. Hmm. Um, I didn't, I don't think I read about that. So I'm going to guess it was Alex Chilton. That's a okay, guess. Okay. These guys were definitely influenced by the birds. And I think you can, you can yes, hear, hear yeah. in mm-hmm. that guitar tone, the guitar that starts the song, like almost doesn't even sound like a guitar. It's so jangly. <laughs> Super jangly. Yeah. Jody, the drummer said that when they brought this in, to the, the studio again Alex had written this that everything just came together in like two or three takes which you could kind of hear I mean that the song lends itself I mean it's a pretty standard format it's not like they're throwing out you know YYZ sure. or something and then all this <laughs> all sure. of a sudden they're all like landed on the weird timing and everything I think I my read I didn't I'm not sure about this but I read that it was kind of about Vietnam and the draft and that yeah. gave me like a layer oh. to it and can we just say, I mean, I think their harmonies generally on this record are great, but the harmony in that chorus, I just think is excellent. So even though it may be a simple structure that came together quickly for the band, you can tell they poured over it with overdubs afterwards. Yeah, right, right. There, there were earlier versions of this song where he actually mentions the draft board lyrically, and then they went back and they're like, that's ah, a little heavy handed. Why don't we back that off a little bit? But but this is, yeah, this definitely has Vietnam 
uh, undertones because I think Alex's brother was trying to get out of the draft. So it kind of uh, inspired him to to go down that path. It had to have been on all their minds. I mean, any any 20-year-old guy's mind at that point, I suppose. But 1969 and 70, yeah. Yeah, because I think, I think I read that that was even one of the reasons why after – after the after Big Star didn't really you know achieve the success they were hoping for, Andy Hummel, the bass player, was like, "I'm going back to school because that was a way to not have to go to, to the get draft. out, oh, right? To get out of the draft, right? Right, right. Yeah. In addition to the the harmonies, uh, they also use Leslie really well throughout this album on the guitars. I've noticed, which is pro- probably more of a George Harrison kind of. I won't say it's his invention, but sure, um, it definitely that sound. Uh, it kind of flows throughout the album, and I, I definitely dig guitars through through Leslie choruses. I think it's a very cool sound. Why don't you tell the audience for the audience's benefit what a Leslie is, real quick? Yeah, uh, if you picture a speaker and then put a speaker on a stick and spin it around like once or twice a second, it actually throws the sound around the room. So you wind up getting a wow, 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 wow sound as it bounces off all of the, uh, all the stuff in the room. It's a very cool effect. It's usually used in Hammond organs. Uh, but if you can plug a guitar into it, you get a very cool, you know, again, I, I would, I would call it a, uh, uh, George Harrison kind of sound. Yeah. And, and you, sh- and you can change the speed that it spins oh, that's at right. and, that cr- and that changes the effect. Right. But yeah, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned George Harrison, right? Because clearly they were Beatles fans, but I think specifically you hear a lot of George Harrison influence on the record more than I, I think the other Beatles. All right. We're going to move on to a song that, uh, Marty referenced at the start. Uh, I had never heard this version. You're probably familiar with the one from the, that 70s show. Alex Chilton eventually started calling the song that $70 show so I'll, I'll tell you about that in just a second but here's in the street You'll be happy to know that Alex Chilton gets $70 or got $70 every time that 70s show aired. No. Which I was trying to figure out. It's a lot of money. Damn. Well, I, but (laughs) is it? You talking about every new episode or or syndication? In syndication. So yeah, if it's on 10 networks. Yeah. And they've (laughs) been playing the reruns for 15 years. So... (laughs) That's some mailbox money, baby. Well, he's not getting that. He's not getting that money now, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's going to his estate, but still, uh, yeah, he he, I, he did quite well with this tune. Well, did you hear what? First of all, I think this is what Marty was talking about. It's like inoffensive rock of the seventies. I, yeah. I don't think this is a great tune. I think they picked to to honor Big Star on the show. I just don't, you know, by by using it as a theme song, I don't really think they picked anything close and, to the best. Tune. And I think that's why I thought they were from Minnesota because I think that show like takes place somewhere up there. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah they are Midwest. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah good must, call, man. Yeah, it takes place somewhere up there. But but Adam, do you know any more? I didn't couldn't really get more information on the story of how when the producers of that show were like, oh, we want to use a Big Star song, and they're like. 
actually, we want to use a Cheap Trick song. And they're actually like, let's just have Cheap Trick cover Big Star. Oh, wait. Shut up. That's... Shut the hell up. That's Cheap Trick, the <laughs> other yes. 70s yes. power pop band. Yes. 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 What the... F- what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> That's <was> weird. <laughs> I mean, they obviously recorded it like in sure, the 90s sure. or in, you know, early sure. 2000s. Right. But, That's uh, weird. Yeah. But does that yeah. mean they both get paid? That just feels like a really weird decision. That is odd. But it wasn't like when you listen to this, this is so tinny and jangly that this wouldn't have played well, I think, as a theme song. Mm-hmm. I think, honestly, the Cheap Trick version works better. I'm not saying it's better, but it works better for a television oh, yeah. theme song, yeah, right? I could see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that is an odd decision. So this was actually one of Alex's favorite songs before it got picked up. So he did a uh, an interview with Terry Gross in 1994, and she was asking him like, "What's your favorite Big Star song?" And he he said, "This is one of his favorites." No kidding. He uh, like the lyrics are simple, you know, kind of like Chuck Berry ish. Like, oh, I got a car, I like girls, let's go driving in the sun. Like this is this is just absolute drivel. And uh, he <laughs> that's what I like. He, yeah, I mean, he, great prediction. This, this would be the song that would, you know, earn him millions. And it's hit songs do have to be dumb. There's a dumbness to hit songs. I remember back in the chop days writing that song scientist and looking at Phil and going, I think this is just dumb enough to work. (laughs) It has to be dumb. It's true. Uh, So interestingly enough though, Alex Chilton wrote this, but Chris Bell sang this very high register on this tune. And so Chris Bell went with this and did his Led Zeppelin impression kind of. And, uh, and man, I, th- I think he kind of nails it. Yeah. Again, I just, I don't love Chris Bell's voice here. I liked it better on the solo stuff, maybe because the material is more personal. Agreed. But like, for instance, the title track, I am the cosmos, which we'll put on the, the mix in the, in the notes. But with this, it's, uh, it's a little bit hard on my ears to listen to this guy. Same with the first track feel. It's it's like shrilly, may, maybe not quite in key or something. It's like a little, it just kind of hurts to listen right. to. So when so Alex, there's kind of this underlying thread that Alex Chilton lost his, not childhood, but his adolescence in the box tops. So when all of his friends were out driving around, smoking joints, drinking, having fun, partying, he was in a tour bus doing the box tops thing. And so this song, he, 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 or at least some folks have looked back and thought that like, this is him hearkening back to the teenage years that he had missed and that that was a, a kind of a thread through. It's not that easy to have sympathy for that. I got to be honest with you. No, he's like, he's on tour. Like, oh, he's not smoking joints. <laughs> Having sex with hundreds of groupies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> I lost my childhood. Come on. Come on, Alex. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> Woe is me. All right. Well, we're going to continue that theme of, of lost childhood writing with our next focus track called 13. Won't you let me walk you home from school? Won't you let me meet you at the Maybe Friday I can get tickets for the dance Now take you 
I got to be honest, this is my favorite track on the entire album. I just think it's beautiful. I think the the melody is really nice. The bridge is all instrumental and it's got some really nice chord changes in there. So my, my hat off to Alex Chilton on this one. What do you, what do you think 13 refers to? So I think it's the, the story compresses childhood. Like the, the opening verse talks about very innocent, right? Very simple, very innocent. Like, can I take you to the dance? Can I take you to the pool? It's like being like a 13 year old. Right. And then the next, the next line is like, Hey, why don't you tell your dad to F off and get out of my business? So he's like becoming a little right, bit more right. of a rebel. And then there's right. another line where he's like, well, maybe we can go bang somewhere. It's not, it doesn't say yeah, that, but sure, I think sure. it's, it's, it's implied. So it's like, you're cramming like the, the story of like maybe 13 to 18 in a quick, you know, yeah. two and a half minute song, which I thought was really well done. Yeah, I kind of read it as an age, but also a reference to teenagehood generally, since 13 is the first of the teenage years. I, I think it's a really nice, simple song. I think Alex's voice really carries it for me. Again, I just I like his voice. It kind of has a fragility to it. It's it's simple. It's it's never gonna bump me if it's on if it's on the hi-fi. The two acoustic guitar like interplay thing they do, it's not quite a solo. I, I like that. It's, actually... it's kind of like it's kind of like a lullaby kind of vibe. Totally. Thing. I I, I kind of like this song too. It's really nice. You know, I heard an anecdote speaking of distribution problems and how they didn't really care about this band. This was released as a single, but it was mislabeled with a different song title. (laughs) But yeah, I I, I dig this. I I might call it my second favorite on the record. Cool. All right. Well, let's keep this thing moving along to. um, Wait, wait, let me let me say just one more thing, which is because I think it's on it is on a couple of the tracks, but I think it might be the this might be on the the last one that we're going to speak about is they do a really nice ethereal background vocal background harmony it's like it's kind of subtle that it's like an ooze and oz thing but it's heavily washed and reverb and it kind of swirls through your perception in the headphones they do it on yeah. a few of the tunes but i think it's a really cool effect All right, as as we do, we always like to throw in at least one turd on each album. So, so I'm sorry, did I did I spoil did I spoil the next song? This is called. This is what happens when you let a bass player write it. Oh God! <laughs> record a song. Always a problem. We we have no bass players on the line, so I can make that joke. This is called the India song. Thank you. 
I mean, you guys have heard you guys have heard Sloop John B from Pet Sounds on the Beach Boys, right? You've heard that song. Yes. yes. Yeah. It's that song. It's that song. <laughs> Except way shittier. Yes, I guess. I yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's very, very. It's too, too close for comfort. And then there's also like a kink, a kinks thing going on there. Kind of like Australia, that King song. I, I, I don't know what's going on there. It reminded me of my least favorite Crosby, Stills and Nash song, Our House, but but way worse than that. Yeah. So so this, I, my first note here was Miss. Uh, so this was written by Andy Hummel, the bass player. This gets back to the Lennon McCartney thing. So Alex Chilton and Chris Bell had in their mind what they wanted the track listing to look like. And if you if you go back to any of your favorite Beatles albums, you'll likely just see Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney. And then there's like Starkey, right? Or, or Ringo Starr when he throws in like Octopus's Garden. And then it goes Lennon McCartney, Lennon McCartney. They wanted it to look like that on the back of the album. So this was them throwing a bone to their bass player so that it would say, uh, you know, Chilton Bell, Chilton Bell, and then throw in a Hummel there. That's that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, background story for why that happened. Because I did hear the thing about them wanting to co-write all the songs, even though that wasn't really how they wrote the songs. Which, right, which right. perhaps was similar to how Leonard McCartney wrote the songs, which is to say individually. <laughs> we, we have to but just then they put just, both people's names. Yeah, right. but then they just agree that that would be cool. But yeah, this I just wrote lame was the first note I wrote on this one. <laughs> But, but one of the things I read in the Chris Bell uh, biography, There Was a Light, was that there were people, I don't know if it was people at Stax or Arden or just random A&R guys who were like coming up to the bass player, Andy Humwin, being like, this is the best song on the record. You should go solo. Oh, my God. And that was that was like part of what made him be like, this is too political. I'm, I'm out. But uh, <laughs> wow. But also wrong. <laughs> Well, I've ruined the album. I've done my work. I'm going to go work at Lockheed Martin. Bye. I, I listen. I will say this. It's not. It's it's a turd. You know. It's it's got really really vapid lyrics and not nearly as pleasant melodies. I think as the other songs. But that said, if I'm just spinning this record front to back, it doesn't bump me out of my reverie. Sure. Like yeah. say Mother does on synchronicity or something <laughs> oh, God, like that right, right? yeah yeah right, like that's right. a brutal attack on my ears by comparison right <laughs> this is just a less than song right correct right. correct yeah all right we're, we're gonna move things here we're gonna close out our focus list with the last tune on it this one is called watch the sunrise Yeah, dude, another Alex Chilton song. 
I don't I don't think it's as good as the other ones, but it was fun. It gives me pretty strong Leo Kotke vibes. Yeah. Oh, same here. Yeah. Same here. Totally. Yep. 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 I think he was recording music a little bit before this, right? It's all acoustic guitar. Oh, this sounds like maybe it was done on a 12 string. I guess Kotke played the 12 string too. Yeah, definitely 12 string. I mean, one of his albums is called Six and 12 String Guitar. But maybe he only plays six string on it. <laughs> he muted the other six. I think there there may have been an open tuning on this as well, perhaps. But uh, I I appreciate. I, I wish they had just left this as the end of the album. Uh, if, if you're if you're listening at home, there is one other one minute track, uh, which is the technically the last song on the album, which is kind of I don't know. I I, I liked. I wish they had ended on this because this is a very this is a very looking forward kind of song. Which which I I kind of appreciate as a last track, but uh, yeah, I dug this. I I, I thought it was uh, it was really nice. I have uh, written down uh, cool cool bridge. And the harmonies are cool. Very, very, again, very Beatles sounding. All right, that's there. You go, man. We we burned through our focus list. We burned through some history on this band. I I I have a much better appreciation for these guys. All right, so now we we do what we we love. Everybody comes here for which is we're going to go around the room here and vote on whether or not you think you actually need to hear this album before you die. I'm going to throw it over to Marty. Oh, thanks. So it's 1972. I go into my favorite record store, and what do I see? Boom, Allman Brothers Band, Eat a Peach. Grabbing that one. Steely Dan, Can't Buy a Thrill. Yep, that's in the pile. David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust. Yep, great record. Nick Drake, Pink Moon, sure. Great record, beginning to end. Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. Another fantastic, I got a, I got a five album limit. Guess what's not coming home with me? If I can- <laughs> But the distribution, man, the distribution. And it's the, the distribution or not. There could be 50 million copies there. It's not coming. It's not coming home. I got my 1972 albums on lockdown. I don't need another one. I'm going to say pass. All right. All right. Good points all, Rob. Well, luckily, I brought a bag to the store, so I have room for a few more albums. <laughs> No, listen, it's it's an easy one for me. I think that if you want to sound intelligent and sort of well-listened in regards to the musical canon, especially of the 1970s and and of pop music generally, this is an absolute must-listen. I like it because it's a debut record. I like it because I think the writing is good and certainly the production is great. I think it's pop music that respects your intelligence. And we talk a lot about influences here i people draw a lot of influences between this and the indie rock scene the kind of diy scene in the 80s and and into the 90s that's that's more what i see it's it's to me it's a little more of less of a musical influence that carries on with this band but more of an aesthetic of doing it yourself of being kind of unloved but still laboring you know at your labor of love and making cool studio projects and 
hoping they somehow find a, a cult set of fans out there in the world. So to me, that's that's cool, and that's a cool part of my has been a cool part of my like musical listening experience. So for that, I respect Big Star. Go ahead and listen to him. Awesome, thank you, Rob. So this is Adam, and probably of of the of the whole crew here, I'm probably I've, I've probably heard the fewest of all of these albums on this list. So like I said, this was a completely new listen for me. Uh, but this immediately jumped onto my routine playlist. There, there's only been a couple other albums that we've listened to that that have hit me hard uh, during the week. Uh, the uh, the Super Furry Animals, uh, that Spirit album, Aretha Franklin, and this. It it I, I mentioned in my little tweet that this is endlessly listenable, and uh, it it is. So I, I it's a definite yes for me. Uh, I loved this week. I love discovering something new and something that I wish I'd known about before. So love these dudes, love this album. Absolutely go listen to it. So congratulations, big star. You're on the list. Jody, uh, if, uh, if the drummer who's the only surviving member, if you hear this, give us a call. We'd love to have a chat. <laughs> so I, you know, I want to just add that you mentioned some other records that, that came on to your mind and, and you didn't mention this records, the sparks, Kimono My House record. Oh, yes. But, yeah, yeah. And I, I want to point out that I voted no on that record, even though I enjoyed listening to it. And it, it comes to mind because I think Sparks has been called the best band you've never heard of or you know something like that. And Big Star could have a similar, you know, honorific applied. But this, unlike Sparks, is actually music that I think most human beings would appreciate and see clear <laughs> lineage of sparks is just too out so i'm just telling you that i'm being consistent (laughs) with myself i like sparks but they're too strange for public consumption i'll agree with that i'll totally agree with that all right that's awesome cool so what we do now at the end of each show is we whip out the albinator and we determine what we're going to listen to for next week so i think rob has the albinator this week i'm going to throw things over to him thank you adam yeah tom has has handed me uh, well, not the keys, unfortunately. Actually, the keys have come in the form of a Mellotron, and I have to type in a certain, <laughs> a certain like ordering. You have to like, do a certain. <laughs> right. It's like the bone organ from Goonies. <laughs> so let me get that going. Okay. Our homework for next week, what we shall be listening to. Drum roll, please. It is Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Ooh, that's a good one. Some debauchery in there. Yeah, that's got that's got a couple hits on it, right? <laughs> if, if, if I recall, they sold a few. I think they got some distribution right, on right. that. Right, they, <laughs> they did not have similar distribution albums. <laughs> My God, welcome to the jungles. The opening track on that, Mister Bro- Jesus. All right, well, that is going to be a fun listen. Yeah, also some well-behaved young lads, I'm sure. Oh, oh sure, yeah. Just sure. having fun late night in the studio, you know, <laughs> drinking milk, eating apples. 80s guitar tropes as well in there. So that's all sure. very interesting. Well, I, I want to extend a big thank you as well to our guest tonight, Marty. Marty, thank you so much for spending the evening with us. It has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's awesome. Fun as always. And anytime, any amount of notice. I love doing this. Awesome. Awesome. Let's do it some more. Cool. All right, so I think that's going to be it for us tonight. So on behalf of 1001 Album Complaints, I'm Adam. Oh, hey, I'm Marty. Hi. (laughs) And I'm Rob. (laughs) Boosh. Boosh.